The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Good evening and welcome to Common Ground. My name is Gail and I'd like to introduce our speaker today. Sorry, my name is Gail and I'd like to introduce our guest speaker tonight, Ajahn Jyoti Paul. Um, Ajahn Jyoti Paul was born in Indiana and for a while worked at IMS. And while on staff at uh, IMS, he met Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Humadamo. After leaving there, he went up to Arrow River, which many of you have been to, and stayed with Ajahn Kumadam, um, which is up in Thunder Bay, just across the border. So if you are interested, talk to the Ajahn after the place that is. He requested uh, the going forth of taking that um, on a Jericho ordination in 1998, and then ordained as a bhikkhu with Ajahn Pasano. Um, as a preceptor on Ajahn Chah's birthday on June 17, 2000. So he's had 12 rainy seasons under him. Uh, right now he's at Abagari in California, but you've also spent time at Bewuti in New Zealand and in Wellington, monastery there, and uh, up at Pacific Hermitage, which is in Washington, D.C., or Washington State, Washington. So, uh, the Ajahn will give a talk followed by questions and uh, answers, hopefully, and then we'll do a couple of minutes of just kind of some things that are happening around here. Thank you. Thank you again. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Varahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Varahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Varahato Sama Sambhutasa so it's a pleasure to, to be back at the Common Ground. This is the first time, because yesterday was the first time I've been to the center since it's been finished. So uh, uh, when I left to go to New Zealand about four years ago, it was starting to, to be built. I think I saw it about 80% finished, so it's, it's quite nice to know people are practicing here. And, uh, being developed. And also, too, as, uh, I was disappointed Mark uh, wasn't feeling well this evening, so he, he's not here, Mark Greenberg. So, um, but uh, I guess it was about a month ago or maybe two months ago, I was asked if I had a, a topic to, to, to speak on. And that kind of makes me want to cry because I don't know what I'm going to do two months from now or what I'm <laughs> contemplating. But uh, at the time, I was uh, quite intensely sort of looking at the, uh, the Metta Sutta. And uh, I was living at the Pacific Hermitage in Washington State. And the senior monk there, I was living there because he had to go back to a funeral. Uh, the monk who ordained him, we call him a preceptor. His uh, preceptor had passed away. He was a very well-respected elderly monk. 
and um, you know, somebody who's, who's really well esteemed like that. I'm guessing there were about five, six thousand monks sort of came to the to the funeral, and another probably ten thousand lay people sort of came. So it's a really big event. And then at the end of that, then they had uh, some sangha business meetings. Yes, we have business meetings as monks. So sort of just everybody getting together and just renewing friendships and, and uh, just making sure everybody's on the same page with, with regulations and things like that. And then he, he hadn't been to Thailand, this month I was living with, hadn't been there for a while. It's where he started the training and uh, had friends who were monks and teachers there. And so he spent another sort of month outside of the, the original reason he was there, just visiting and catching up with people. And so. Uh, one of the things he was really looking forward to doing was one one particular teacher he had, was uh, Ajahn Gunha, was his name. He really was looking forward to having an interview with him, spending time with him. And just uh, my friend had just uh, recently, last two years, has been looking after the Hermitage. And, uh, he's about not quite, but almost 20 years as a monk, and uh, just looking forward to getting you know, his teacher's perspective on things like you know how to run a monastery. You know, how to, what attitudes he should have, or what practices he should be developing, and uh, he said, kind of to his surprise, his teacher. Well, I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but his teacher told him he should be focusing on loving kindness, and uh, you know, really sort of developing that as his primary meditation object, because he's sort of the face of the monastery. You know, people are coming to him, both being generous, being supportive of him, and asking questions, or you know. And, bringing problems you know, to him, and so just developing that heart of, of, of loving kindness and being open. And uh, when he came back, at that point, the two of us were there for about three months together, and every Tuesday night we had a, a gathering, kind of like this, where we do some guided meditation or and give a Dhamma talk. And every other week we were trading, so he would give one talk and I'd give the next. So the first week he came back, he just talked a little bit about his, his travels in Thailand and had some funny stories about that, and and then the next week was my turn to give a talk. And so usually, you know, I know I'll be giving one, so I kind of just like whatever sort of questions come up during the week. We see people all week long. Sometimes there's sort of a theme comes out during the week of particular types of questions, and very then you you're sort of thinking about these things, contemplating these things in your own meditation. So that becomes your the subject of your talk, and it's often very spontaneous. We rarely have notes like I do tonight. I'm cheating. And so, uh, but uh, the, uh, it was my turn to give the talk, and I just was all week long, like nothing was coming up in my mind. And uh, it was just, you know, not, yeah, nothing was inspiring me, nothing felt like just what I was supposed to be talking about. And then that day, which is no problem, that, that happens quite a bit. And then sometimes, like that day, or even just, just shortly before the talk, something will come up and answer, a question will come up, and or something really strongly will come up. There's this real feeling in the heart of, like, okay, this is what's supposed to be shared. And just about two hours before I was to, you know, to go and give the talk, the senior monk asked me, he said, you know, do you have any idea what you're going to talk about tonight? And I was like, you know, there's nothing there. I said, I think it's actually your turn to give the talk. <laughs> And surprisingly, he said, I think so, too. And so his, he was feeling really, I'm really energized, like something was really sort of in his heart like he wanted to share. And so he, he, he sort of shared this story about how he was with his teacher, and, and his teacher sort of asked him to, you know, not asked him, but suggested he practice loving kindness. And I found it really touching because he was quite vulnerable when he was giving this talk. He was just sort of mentioned, he actually mentioned, like, 
that uh, you know, like when his teacher said that, the first reaction he had was, "But I don't know how to do that. You know, like, you know how, I don't know how to how to practice loving kindness." And I found it kind of shocking when he said this because I've, I've known this monk, and I've know he's I know he's listened to you know as all, all of you probably have have been involved with Buddhism for more than a year. He probably heard dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of talks on loving kindness. So it was just like, what does he mean? He's been a monk for 20 years. He's, he's heard hundreds of talks on loving kindness. What does he mean by that? And then, um, so that, you know, so that just started a question in myself. It's like, well, what really do I know about loving kindness? You know, what are my attitudes towards loving kindness? You know, can I look at the subject from a completely fresh perspective? And so that that then started becoming my my meditation object again, just sort of just even investigating that question. And uh, that's a lot of what contemplation is, just sort of just bringing up that question and asking it. And so when I started thinking about it, like my past history was when I I, well, I started meditation about 20 years ago in a Zen tradition. And uh, I don't remember ever any teachings, you know, sort of directly about loving kindness or what we call metta. And then the first Theravada teachings were to the Galinka Retreat Center. And you know, metta is mentioned if you've ever done those retreats. And, but it's not really taught as a, as a meditation technique. And I, pretty early on, when I started learning to meditate, I, I went to Thailand with the idea of ordaining and uh, um, went to Wat Pa Manichap, which is where most of the Westerners uh, train. And, you know, most most uh, Westerners, that, not all, but most of the Westerners that I know who are uh, Buddhist monks have, have ordained there. And, uh, and I decided that that tradition was not for me. And so I, I, that was not right. I just didn't think that that was, I wasn't ready for it. So I, so I left the monastery. But I'd heard about this uh, uh, teacher, teachers, uh, Rosemary and Steve Wiseman, down in southern Thailand. So I went and did their retreat. And they introduced me to, or introduced their retreat with, with the loving kindness. And it, uh, it was the first meditation object that really, it really pulled me in. It was something that I had a lot of energy for, a lot of, you know, very strongly sort of, uh, reacted to it very positively, and uh, it, was, it wasn't easy it, uh, when I was practicing it, but it was something I really was drawn towards. So that became my primary meditation object. And then very shortly after that, I came back to the United States and, and was introduced to IMS, where I eventually was on staff. And uh, I learned before I became on staff, I sat a couple of retreats with from the various teachers there. And Sharon Salzberg, who's written a book on loving kindness, and Jack. Uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and all of them so many kind of loving kindness retreats and so that became it was like my only meditation object it was just sort of just doing loving kindness and right before I joined the staff at IMS I was uh, uh, living in an ashram in, in Massachusetts called the Kripalu Center and it was uh, well what's happening was is uh, every evening I would go up into their meditation hall, meditation room upstairs, and, and I was doing the, the loving kindness meditation. And it was kind of funny, there was a, a man who was on the, the staff, the same department I was in, and he was a younger man. He had real long hair and dreadlocks and, and kind of a what, Rossifarian kind of person. And I'm sure he was smoking lots of marijuana because his eyes were always sort of glazed over and, and stuff like that. And just to show you how intensely I was into loving kindness, after I'd be sitting meditating for a couple hours, I'd be walking down the hallway, and he'd come up to me, and he'd look right into my eyes, and be going, you've been doing metta. 
his eye was just blissed out, you know, sort of, this was his sort of you know, other realm and stuff. And, uh, but what I realized was later, much later, was I was using loving kindness as a way of not feeling. It's like, you know, there was difficulty in my life. There was uh, lots of anger or aversion. And in order not to feel that, I was, you know, developing this, this sort of, uh, this blissed out mind state. So I could just, uh, you know, just go into it whenever I wanted to or, or you know, setting, I could set the conditions where I could go into that. It took me a, a while to figure that out. Uh, but what happened was before I really, really figured it out was that to, to do that requires a lot of energy. You know, a lot of, you have to, one thing, you have to have the time, you have to have the, the focus and uh, you know, the conditions right which weren't always there, so it was sort of like hit or miss if I could get into those states. But when I could get into it, it was, was, you know, just, it really burned, actually, almost just just how much energy you're you're raising through that bliss. And so it became exhausting. And uh, um, about that time is when I sort of met the monastic form and uh, and sat a couple of retreats with uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Punadamo, and they introduced me to more of the mindfulness of breathing techniques and that was much more you know, settling and calming so I just naturally just sort of set the uh, loving kindness down and then over the years there have been times where like I've wanted to practice with it and, and sort of loving kindness and pick it up but there's been there's been a version to it because I still have this memory of like, how much energy it took to get into that state and those, those sort of sort of views and opinions about it and so when when my friends sort of mentioned like you know I don't know how to practice loving kindness it's like Oh, I don't either. You know, so here, here I am, sort of, you know, almost 20 years, probably about 15 years after having learned it, and 10 years after really sort of having set it down. It's like maybe it's something that I need to, to pick up again, need to sort of investigate what are my what are my attitudes about this. So for the last two months that I was living with this monk, we started every night we'd have we were on a retreat period, and so every night we'd, well, all day long, the three of us we were just practicing sitting, walking together all day long. And in the evening, we'd have tea. And so we start picking up various uh, teachings, uh, loving kindness, doing various readings. But the one thing we did is we picked up the, the, the chant. It's, uh, you do it here, the, the Buddhist words on loving kindness. And we started you know, just looking at that and uh, listening to, I was listening to, uh, say, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's got a couple of really good sort of really deep, Sort of breaking down the sutta, sort of word by word, sort of analysis of it, and a couple other monks I was, was listening to their their takes on the, on the sutta, and the sutta itself is is, is kind of interesting. That uh, um, again, it's one of things like that there's just sort of like I would say it's like like I hadn't really questioned my attitude towards loving kindness or really seen that you know like there was a version to it or some sort of, you know, not wanting to pick that up and never really questioning that. And then when we started looking at the Buddhist words of loving kindness as a sutta, you know, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, all these years that I've been a monk and have been chanting the sutta, there's lots of it that didn't, didn't make any sense to me. And it's just sort of like, you know, it's like it's the Buddhist words of loving kindness, but if you really listen to the words, there's only one or two places in the sutta at all that he actually talks about anything that you're supposed to be cultivating. It's like, you know, it's like, Vikubodhi Bodhi points out that there's only one place in the, in the Pali, there's only one time that Buddha even mentions the word metta. And uh, in, in the entire sutta, he mentions the word once. And, uh, and so the sutta itself, though, is, is, is a, it's a poem. And I suspect it probably was written by the Buddha. I don't really have any, 
you know, can't really know that for sure. And sometimes it could have been his disciples later sort of coming up with, with you know, the teachings. But it probably was you know, the direct words of the Buddha. And it was probably, um, he probably he sort of came up with this, this, this you know, say it's a poem. So he came up with this poem. So it is easy to remember. And it's something that you can recite and you take with you and, and remember and practice with. So one thing to remember is is that it, it, it's probably like, you know, just a very concise sort of teaching. So it's like, even though you know, there's a structure to it and you know, but it does talk about different qualities, it's not sort of like these are the only things. So it's not, you know, there's, there's other things you can add into it, other ways to, to practice. Um, so this is just sort of like just a basic guideline for for how to uh, how to approach the subject. And uh, but the poem is made up of, say, the classical sort of three aspects of of the Buddhist path. So it starts off with the first part is sila, and then it gets into, which is sort of morality, sort of ethics, um, sort of a, you know, basic ways of, of, of practicing to develop you know, that lead to more, say, concentration states and, and uh, to meditation. And then it gets into samadhi, uh, concentration practices, and then, or the, say, the, the physical practices that would recommend for this. And just the very end, the last like four or five lines, he um, t- touches on it's called panya or wisdom. And so there actually is a, is a wisdom aspect to this poem as well. And what I wanted to do tonight was just really focus on that, the, the first third of it, which is the, the sila aspect. Because um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, and monk Ajahn Sona, that I was, we were listening to his talk about this, and he, he, he poses this. I, I just love the way of thinking about it. He sort of says, you know, just to make things fresh and make things new, he says you know, he likes to imagine that he's sort of living 2,600 years ago. And actually, this, this past May was uh, 2,600 years ago that Buddha became enlightened. So if you look at the Buddhist calendar, so it's you know so roughly 2,600 years ago. You just imagine that you're a monastic living in India, and uh, you know you know the Buddha's around. You're still even a disciple of his, but you're not living with him. And you, know, and you start hearing rumors that he's talking about this practice of loving kindness, and you're kind of intrigued by that. Well, I wonder what this is about. What's it? You know, so we all of us sort of go out wandering and looking for the Buddha, and we, we find him, and then we. We uh, you know, pose this question to him. You know, what what is this? You know, can you teach us this loving kindness meditation? And so he starts off with he says, okay, this is what should be done uh, by one who's skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. So we're sitting here going, wait, we just asked him about loving kindness. I don't think he heard our question. Let's, let's ask him again. So he's already a third the way through the poem, and it's like he hasn't said anything about loving kindness. The very next line is, he actually sums it up in just one line. It's actually the only place he really ever says anything about what actually loving kindness is. And he just says, uh, wishing. So it's actually just a wish. It's actually not a feeling. It's not anything you have to cultivate or you know, this is, yeah, that blissed out feeling I was getting. That really isn't uh, loving kindness. He says, so wishing, may all beings be at ease. And that's it. You really, if you look at everything that's in there, the rest of it is sort of like what beings should be sent to. It's talking about directions, talking about intent, how to intensify the practice. 
And he comes back to that several times. You know, may all beings be at ease. And there's another place he says, let none deceive another or wish harm upon another, uh, not practicing with ill will. So it's it's always coming back to may all beings be at ease. Just that wish that all beings be happy, that all beings be free of suffering. That's that's what he's, he's pointing to. But it's interesting that like this, this whole introductory section there is sort of, uh, you know, he starts with that. So it's like, he says, okay, so if you wish to be sending somebody loving kindness, if you wish that wish for that, this is how you do it. So you have to develop, he really encourages that loving kindness meditation is learning to develop all those other qualities. And I thought I'd go through, I can't go through all of them in the amount of time we have, but there are some interesting um just looking at, let's say, word word by word, all of those those different qualities, and there's some interesting sort of subtleties that come out to come out of it. And so the very first line, which is translated, um, "This is what should be done," right there is quite fascinating, and it's the, the the Buddha is actually pointing to that, say, loving kindness is it's not something that happens to us. It's not something that's uh, um, say that we have say. Is you might feel like, well, I'm not a loving person. You know, just I've, I've heard this loving, I've heard about this sort of practice, and it just doesn't come to me. So it's just that's not my temperament. So I'm going to you know, not practice this. You know, maybe maybe Jody Paul is not a very good teacher, and he's not you know, giving me the right instructions. So I'm, I'm not going to practice this. I'll wait till somebody else comes along. But so what the Buddha's pointing to is that it, it is something that we, we cultivate. It's something that uh, yeah, you know, we pick up and, and investigate. And you know, start to create the causes for for that feeling of goodwill to be there, and, uh, and it, so it points right to initially the sort of the uh, the whole Buddhist teachings are about causality. It's about you know, creating causes, so causes and effect. So it's really looking just right at the very first sentence. You know, this is what should be done, um, and then. Uh, then the interesting thing is, goes on, and it says, "This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace." So this, the, the that last part there, the state of peace, is quite interesting. If you look at various different scholars who, who translate this, there's probably you know, hundreds of different translations of this the sutta. Uh, you know, about half of the scholars will translate the state of peace in capital letters, and half of them do it in, in small letters. And so when they're doing that, they're actually pointing at two different, actually two different uh, sort of attitudes to take with the sutta. And so those that translate it with the capital letters are actually pointing to nibbana, is uh, um, sort of like uh, you know, the complete cessation of suffering, looking at enlightenment. And so, and then those who are translating the smaller letters, they're not maybe negating that as a possibility, but it's, it's looking at it as well, just even temporarily. It's like if we, if we bring up meditation, if we have stress in our lives, and uh, that feeling, you know, you know, just wishing, when you're wishing happiness for somebody else, it's like you're getting out of your own head, you're getting out of your own problems, and you know, thinking about other people, which is usually a lot. As one for Sinead says, you know, we're, you know, it's like, uh, I, forget, I don't know if he says it exactly like this, but it's like, uh, this is how I translate it. It's like, wherever I am, that's where I suffer. And <laughs> I'm there, I suffer. If I'm not there, then I'm and I'm not suffering. So, and then, uh, so yeah, so just that state of peace, uh, you know, as a, as a temporary uh, object. 
And it's interesting listening to people voting. He's totally into, into languages and, you know, work things out. And it's interesting that in the Pali, the, the word can actually be translated, it can be translated either way. It actually has that very subtle meaning. I think to, and the Buddha often did this. He would play play around with, with words and, uh, and uh, um, use double meanings and things like this. And also, too, it's like, uh, I just mentioned that you know, we show up and ask the Buddha what loving kindness is. I was just reminded last week we had a couple of uh, ordinations at the monastery in California, and one of the monks uh, during a morning reflection was sort of pointing out that when someone goes forth as a novice, you know, they came to the Buddha and asked to become come into the cycle and asked you know, for the ordination to wear the, wear the robes, and, and so the first thing the Buddha says is, "Okay, well, I'll give you a meditation. Meditate on hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin." That's, that's the first thing that's sort of mentioned in the in the ordination, and it's just like, oh, wait, I didn't ask for meditation instruction, I asked to become a monk. <laughs> you know, the Buddha's, so he, it's not uncommon for the Buddha to sort of teach this way, to sort of, you know, ask a question and then hint a complete switch it. It was completely trying to get us to see things in a slightly different way. And so it's not unusual, was the kind of the wording of this, the sutta starting that way. And so, but I think it's important to understand with the, let's say, the, the, those translators who do translate it, the this, this state, uh, state of peace as capital letters, is that this sutta, uh, this particular teaching, actually can lead us all the way to enlightenment. And that's a, it's not just sort of a meditation we do at the end of the retreat to um, sort of you know, feel good when we leave or to you know, sort of like, as I was using it, trying to not feel. It's actually this sort of, it's a, it's a meditation that you, you, you cultivate and develop. Uh, and if you do it correctly, if we you know, understand it, it can lead to enlightenment. And I had the experience when I was a junior monk of living in Thailand, and I was talking to a particular teacher, and, uh, and, and my question was around a right speech. And, uh, and, and he, point, he gave me this really beautiful teaching. It was about an hour long. He was talking to me. And uh, he said, and basically, just, just taking a practice of not, not talking about anybody else. Just you're taking that on as, 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 a, as a, an intention, as a practice of not, not, uh, not uh, yeah, talking about anybody else. Then he walked me through it sort of step by step. It's sort of like how you basically the Eightfold Path. How you have to have right intention and right action. Uh, your concentration on what you're doing and, and just, just developing all those various paths just on that not talking about somebody else and how it could actually lead to enlightenment. And so you know, what he was pointing to is like really anything that's skillful and wholesome, if you take that and you take apply to the Eightfold Path, that can lead you to enlightenment. Bhikkhu Bodhi does make the point that just the way that the final line is worded here in, in the sutras, not being born again into this world, that I think the direct translation from Pali would be that it actually wouldn't lead to arahantship, full enlightenment, would be non-returner. But uh, I don't think there's anything that's... I wouldn't be worried if we only attained non-returning. <laughs> we could get even stream entry, that, that would be great. So, And it might be that you actually can become fully enlightened practicing this, but the, the sutta itself sort of implies that it's, it's non-returning. Um, then when you, so when we first, so the Buddha sort of just this first couple lines here, just sort of setting the attitude. So it's like looking at we are talking about cause, causes and effects. We are talking about uh, um, developing 
the meditation, and you know, the goal is is looking at the liberation and peace. So then, when he first gets into the, there's like 16 qualities that the, that the Buddha mentions there that I that I had read, sort of from things like being contented, uh, unburdened with duties, and so just uh, I'm not going to have too much time. But I'll just go through a few of the words. Um, and one thing that uh, kind of kind of struck me was uh, uh, language isn't uh, one of my skills. I'm more of a visual visual type of person, a visual artist, and so. Uh, Words can be, um, I won't say difficult, but uh, um, when I was on staff at IMS, I, uh, um, I don't know, something must have been happening with the staff there when I was there. We weren't quite getting along or something. So, uh, the teacher there invited uh, Andy Olensky to come over and, and give a uh, presentation on the sutta. And uh, all I remember was the first word of the sutta was about concord. That's how Andy was uh, translating the word. And then he started talking about the word concord. And I think he went on for 45 minutes just about what the word concord means. And so we spent the entire entire hour, we only got to the first word of the sutta. And uh, it unfortunately had a sort of demoralizing sort of effect on me because I was like, wow, like, you know, I'm trying to learn Pali and I don't even understand English. <laughs> Isn't it going to go too far? So, but the very first word that Buddha mentions here is called sako, which is uh, translated, that's the part where it says, let them be able and upright. And so sako, but uh, a friend of mine at the monastery, he's studying Pali, and he translates that word as carefully. So when I was looking at this, I just, I just picked up Webster's Dictionary and started looking at the, just the definition of the word careful. And uh, so what comes up is caution in one's actions, uh, being exact and thorough, um, performing an action with accuracy, and then the last one was mindful, being mindful. And then, so from that I looked up the, the, the thesaurus, and then it had some greater words, I thought really great words for, for Buddhist sort of contemplation or thinking of it in terms of, for Buddhism, the words were diligent, prudent, heedful, mindful, and aware. Just other words for this, you know, other ways to translate the word, the word sako, being let them be able. And uh, um, so, to me, it's like what I like doing in, in meditation um, is to sort of sometimes just take a word like that, and then just sort of just let it go through my mind. Like each of each of these, uh, say, 16 different different poly words. You know, you, you can find the poly translation, and, which you can't do online. I think Andy Olinsky's got got one from the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, a breakdown of all of these. And just, you know, just taking each word and just sort of bringing it into your mind, just like throughout the day, and sort of like you know, what actually does that word "careful" mean, or what does it mean to be able, and, and just sort of looking at your life in terms of how you can cultivate that, or just it's actually just bringing it into consciousness. It's not like you even have to come up with an answer or, or any any idea, but it's just keeping something wholesome in mind. And when you're doing that, and you just keep refreshing that in your mind you are preventing unwholesome states from arising. And, you know, that in and of itself is, is a really uh, a good type of practice. Now, the uh, one word that's uh, where we do it, where we translate it in the Amravati and by Giri translations, and it's in here too, is uh, the, the next couple of words are straightforward and gentle in speech. Now, the, this is actually, an, uh, according to Bikabodhi, an incorrect translation. The, uh, gentle in speech. It comes from the word suvacho, and the, the actual uh, translation of that is easy to speak to. 
so it's somebody who's easy to speak to. And you, you think about this, it's, a, it's quite a powerful um, teaching, especially like when you live in a community and, and just the attitude that we should have. And you can see like, if you're somebody who's easy to speak to as a meditator, like you're going to get uh, you know, many more opportunities for say, uh, positive feedback and, uh, and, and opportunities to grow. And my example of this was during my third year as a monk, we get the opportunity to go to a different monastery to spend a year. And so I went, I chose to go to Thailand. And uh, I, so I asked my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, when I was going over, any advice he had for me going over there. And he just sort of said, you know, when you get there you know, to the senior monks or you're talking to, you just, uh, he said, I think it was three pieces of advice. Like, if they ask you if you need anything, say no. <laughs> just be uh, contented with what you have, be approval. Um, ask if there's anything you can do to help. And then he said the other thing was is to ask people for, for feedback. Ask people for uh, giving you, it's called, we call it admonishment. You ask to be admonished, ask for feedback. And so when I first got there, in the first morning, um, we were getting ready, or, you know, I just, uh, yeah, just started telling people this. And then, so the right at, we, we sit in meditation about three in the morning and then sit for about an hour, hour and a half, then do a, a cleanup. And then just as it's getting to be dawn, then we, we go out on our own circle. It wasn't quite dawn, dawn yet. And the monks sit on a raised platform like this that goes all the way around the hall. And it's actually about the height of a chair. And so as soon as we sort of finished, we were waiting for it to be dawn. I went and sat down on the asana with the chair. And someone comes up to me and says, uh, Chody Paula, we don't, we don't sit there on the asana like that. And you know, you sit on it like I'm sitting on it right now, or you, or you stand. You know, like, oh, thank you. You know, if you see me doing anything else wrong, please let me know. And I'm big kind of surprised to hear that sort of openness. You know, and I said, okay. So I got up, and about that time it was time to go on arms around. So I started putting my robe on, and another monk comes up and says, Jody Paula, we don't put our robes on standing in front of the asana. You know, somebody else might be standing there. It's kind of rude to do that right in front of them. I'm like, oh, thank you. And if you see me doing anything else wrong, let me know. And I kind of look at me strange. So I walk into the center of the room, you know, kind of near the Buddha image. And so I start to put my robe on. Another monk comes up, Jody Paula, we don't put our robes on in front of the Buddha image. And I was like, oh, thank you. If you see me doing anything wrong, just let me know. And so this sort of it just became a sort of mantra of mine. <laughs> and I think within like three days, I got like 95% of the etiquette in that particular monastery down because people were not afraid to tell me anything. I'd already told them three or four times, you know, oh, thank you. And so it was almost like a joke. They were trying to find things wrong with me so they could hear me say this. That's how I guess I got it all, all down very quickly. And it's like each monastery that you go to, even in the United States, like each monastery will translate sort of like the rules or the etiquette, slightly different for, for cultural things like that. So even in Thailand, you, know, you might have you know, 100 monasteries there that are affiliated with Ajahn Chah, but each one, you know, the senior abbot or you know, the senior monks will interpret the rules slightly differently. And, and so you, know, you do have to be very open and, and aware of each place you go that, that you are going to have subtle differences. So this is easy to speak to. You know, just uh, this creates that openness and that friendliness, and, uh, and, and you do get the feedback. And then you know, it's like you can imagine, like if I had been, you know, sort of hostile, like you know, sort of complaining, like, well, how should I know that? And so like that. And people would be resentful towards me, they'd be afraid of me, and things like that. And that would just create this tension. And, and it's going to be hard to meditate if you if you have this this even perception that people don't like you or, or 
afraid of you. So just that being, cultivating that attitude of being easy to speak to. And you know, there were times like when I was when, when people do bring things to you, it's uh, it can be this you know closing of the heart sort of feeling of I don't want to you know, hear something negative. You know. But it's a uh, you know cultivating the attitude if someone actually does come to you and uh, you know, present something to you, it's really a gift. You know, it's like it's a gift, in, and it's really interesting when you look at it deeply. It's like there's really only two possibilities if someone comes to you with criticism. One is they're right, and one is they're wrong. And if they're right, then it's great because you just learn something about yourself, and you can actually develop and improve your improve your behavior or attitude or something like that. But if they're wrong, it's like, well, why are you? They're wrong. You can you can thank them for their, their thank you for your opinion. <laughs> you know, but it, if it's wrong, it really shouldn't shouldn't bother. Unless it's maybe your boss or something like that. But uh, you know, someone's judging how much money you should earn or something like that. It might be a little harder to take. But, you know. So, yeah, so just cultivating that, that quality of gentleness in speech, or, you know, um, easy to speak to, being easy to speak to. Um, I guess the, just don't want to leave time for question and answers. But another um, quality that uh, I think is quite significant is uh, um, the Pali word is santusiko, which means... Um, Contented, um, not not needing many, not having many needs. And uh, Ajahn Sona, when he was was talking about this word, brought this beautiful example of uh, in Thailand when he was a, a very junior monk, this is probably 25, 30 years ago. The um, you know, the villagers all around the monasteries of Wapanachak in the northeast of Thailand, so it's the, like the poorest part of Thailand. And, uh, and even when I was there, about not quite, but almost 20 years ago, um, all of the, the, the village shacks and things like that were just bamboo woven woven grass, bamboo floors and grass ceilings. And there may not be any furniture inside the houses. You know, it's just a, just a bare floor, and they had like grass mats that they'd roll out to sleep on. And you know, the whole family would be, you know, in, a, in just one or two rooms. And uh, um, but the people were, you know, very happy. You know, we, we hear this all the time. You know, people living in, in uh, say, third world countries being being really happy. And this is is the case of you know, Thailand. So it's the country of smiles and the land of smiles. And, and, and so that was really the case in, in the in the villages. People were very generous. And you, know, you hear stories of it was very common, you know, like 50 years ago. Like you know, people who were traveling salesmen or people who were traveling just walking through a village, and you know, people just it was just natural. You, you let somebody stay in your house. You know, you know, it's not big of a burden if you're sleeping on the floor and <laughs> having one more person on the front porch. You know, so it's not a, not a big deal. So it was very common. But even in Thailand nowadays, that's not so. You know, it's not so common at all. But, uh, you know, that kind of hospitality, that opening, and uh, so Ajahn Sona's sort of take on this is that it was you know advertising, television, and so as soon as um, you're seeing all the you know the pictures and the images, and you're sort of seeing what you don't have. That's when discontent settles. That's when discontent settles in, and uh, and so yeah, as soon as there's the desire for you know the items you're seeing, the items that you're being told through advertising that you know, you need to be happy, then the family broke down the family system. So it's like the uh, 
children would often be sent off to the city to get you know, jobs in construction. And in Thailand, in particular, the you know, family structure is like, you know, it's like the most important sort of aspect, you know, right, right up there with religion, is sort of the family cohesiveness. So to send, break up the family and send the kids away or something like that was, it was you know, very damaging. And then, you know, even if you did get, you know, some money and things like that, it's, it's never going to be to the standard of the West and things like that. So there's just this discontent. And, uh, but what he pointed out was then, you know, from this, it was really kind of interesting observation, is that, that that happiness and that contentment they had before was really a happiness based on innocence. Really, you know, it was, it was only they were content because they didn't know there was anything else out there. But as Westerners, you know, we, we know, you know, that, you know, sense of pleasures or, you know, getting what we want, that's not, it doesn't actually lead to happiness. And so, as Westerners, we have a real opportunity as meditators to actually uh, discover through wisdom what is contentment. Like, uh, you know, that, uh, so, if, if we actually ever are able to cultivate that in ourselves, it'll be coming from wisdom and it'll be much stronger. And so, it's, uh, we have an advantage there if we, have, we have to actually turn our minds to it. The last word I want to bring up was uh, in the, in the uh, suttas, uh, is, uh, um, it's translated as unburdened with duties. And, uh, and so, what this is really pointing to is that we actually always have duties. We always have responsibilities, and uh, um, especially this sutta was being given to, to monks, and it was given to some monks who were asking questions. So even even with monastics, we have you know, lots and lots of rules, lots and lots of etiquette rules. There's probably thousands of actually etiquette rules in each monastery of how you do things on top of our precepts. And I have 227 precepts. So I have a duty and responsibility to keep those. And then if I choose to live in a particular community, it's good for me to, to learn what the etiquette rules are and to, to follow those duties. So like, I'm on a, a building committee right now. We're trying to build a you know, $2 million building you know, kitchen and all this sort of stuff. So it's like you know, I'm involved in meetings with architects and engineers and stuff like that. So I have duties and responsibilities. But the, uh, what it's pointing to, though, is, is, is actually how we hold that. It's like we, we do have we do have precepts, we do have um, duties, and so I had this great example where um, when I was up in, in Washington, I don't know if you remember back in January, there was a big ice storm that hit that area, and uh, um, it was like two nights of terror because it was just we got 18 inches of snow, and almost immediately it started freezing rain. They had all these huge pine trees with you know, lots of snow, and the snow froze onto them. And then uh, it was like every 15 minutes, there's a, a huge tree falling, and two of them hit our house directly. And so and I was I was living in a little uh, cabin off to the side, and, and I had to I was living up in a loft, and I was like, yeah, I'm not sleeping up in that loft. The trees didn't come down, and so I slept on the floor next to a wall. And sure enough, one night a tree fell, hit the wall that I was sleeping next to. <laughs> there was no getting away from it. And, uh, but finally, the last day of it, one tree fell and hit the roof. We've been out on alms round. We had these uh, some called yak traps. They're really great. They're like little. Um, cramp on things you put on your shoes so nobody else could get around in the town but the monks could go out for their alms around walking around their alms poles and getting, getting fed and got back to the monastery and we said oh look at that another tree hanging over the top of the, the roof and we didn't think anything of it and went in and 
had to go upstairs to get something, and there was a tree branch coming down into the hallway, and thought, that shouldn't be there. And uh, so we got up on the tree, up on the, the roof, and had to change off, get the, get the tree off, and then we had to shovel off all the snow, and, and get, there were 13 holes in the roof, and we had to patch those and stuff like that. And I started to hear my mind saying, I'm a monk. You know what? I didn't want to be a householder. You know why? Why am I up here? And immediately I caught it. This, this whining voice, you know, saying, "Why me?" You know, like you, you know, it's like this other voice came in and said, "Why not? You're the only one living here." It's like that. It's going to It's like, and it was interesting. It's like because that whining voice. It's like if I let that go, you know, it's like, you know, the roof was patched in you know like two hours. You know, it was, it was done over with. And, it could have just been forgotten. But that little voice in me that was saying, why me? Why do I have to do it? That, that voice left a resonance. You know, it, it sort of left, uh, left a trace there. So it's, even though I can laugh about it, joke about it, it was just that complaining mind is, uh, is something we really need to look at and to, you know, to use wisdom to counter it and you know, not, not get caught in that kind of thinking. So if I got caught in it for a long time, and fortunately the other monk, when I said that, didn't, didn't bite into it. He didn't, uh, yeah, why am I up here too? You know, we should. <laughs> you know, we would have been in real trouble at that point. So, I think that's uh, covered most of what I wanted to. So, this was a kind of a ploy of mine. So, I thought I'd only discuss the first third of the suit. Just in this way, Mark can invite me back next year. And on the next third, then invite me back year after that. And we'll, we'll finish the suit then. So. Uh, we have time for questions. Anybody has any? Yeah. Just the last thing you said. Last week's Steve Armstrong. <coughs> Kamala said that Steve had said recently that retreat they had just finished, but some should never really thought about before that karma begins in your mind. And when you said that about why me starting, mm-hmm. that's just. Can you expand on that just a little more? That concept that that karma. That's where the negative. That's where it starts, right? Yeah. Why is one little negative karma ready to go crazy? Yeah. Well, yeah, because karma is well, karma's action is the, the direct translation of that. So it, it does come from from you know, the the thoughts. So you know the thought thoughts are sort of the precursor for everything. So it's like we we create our reality through through our thinking. You know, sort of setting up. Because I find it interesting, like, uh, I guess it mentioned being on this building committee and things like that. So it's like when I came here, you know, all this beautiful you know, architecture and stuff like that. And the thing that I noticed, the first thing, was the shoe rack in there with all the little trays. I was like, what a great idea. <laughs> and I asked Scott if he could take a photograph of it so I could send it back to the committee and stuff like that. So it's like, it's like where your mind is inclined to if it starts creating that reality. So it's like, you know, probably, hopefully 95% of the people come here you might have just a fleeting thought of that's nice, but hopefully it's not their, their main feature they take away from being here. But, uh, I do notice that like when various other work projects at the monastery and things like that, like whatever I'm assigned to be doing and stuff like that, like we would leave the monastery. Once a week we'd go into the big town and go uh, on alms around and stuff like that. And it's like uh, I remember one time I was I was looking we needed some uh, fence posts to make steps and things like this. And the, the previous owner had all these sort of random fences all through the property. And 
and uh, we didn't need them anymore, so we were always trying to find where there were fence posts. So I was always, as I was walking the land, I was always trying to figure out where there'd be fence posts and stuff like that. And then whenever we'd be going into town on the alms round, I'd always be noticing all these fence posts. You know, like wherever there were fence posts everywhere, I was just like, wow. So it's like, so it's similar. It's like, yeah, whatever intention you have in mind, whatever, wherever you're inclining it, it does start creating like what you'll see, what you'll be noticing. So at that moment, like if I had sort of start, you know, let myself continue that train of thought of why me, then I would have, you know, like, well, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? And it just spirals, could continue that. Way. Sort of like the way I was using, the way I was working with it was sort of like actually bringing in sort of like counter questions. Sort of like, that'd be sort of like the wisdom. So it's like, you know, the, the thought becomes like, why do I have to be doing this? Well, the answer was obvious because there was a hole in the roof. <laughs> and, and, you know, if I didn't do it, it was, there was going to be damage and that was going to be very expensive and things like that. But then, you know, at a deeper level, though, there was this sort of awareness that if I did follow that, if I continued to follow that thought, it, it actually was going to be leaving that negative residue. And so sort of just having, making the choice not to actually follow that is sort of really using the wisdom to actually see that yeah, if I do follow this, it is going to lead to you know, negative negative consequences. And so it's, it really, it's really like the more you're mindful, the more sharp, you know, the sooner you can catch it. And so if you didn't catch it right away, then you catch it later. And then, um, so like for, for me, the the tendency. It didn't happen when, uh, before I was a monk, but uh, when I became a monk, all this anger came out, and I had this real strong uh, imperiousness. What I saw happening was, was like, when I was a lay person, um, I, I was always, you know, I made enough money to be, to be able to satisfy any desire I had, basically, and things like that. And uh, um, when I got to the monastery, because then immediately living on the precepts, so the main one there is not eating in the afternoon. And then the first week I was in the monastery, just as a lay guest, once a week we'd do a deep cleaning in the kitchen. And it was, a, it was a small house, like two bedroom, kind of modular home kind of thing that was there on the property. Small kitchen. We had like 10 people in this kitchen trying to clean it. And I was real averse to some of how many people were in the room. So I got in one corner and I was just cleaning the corner of the stove. I had all this aversion to everything having behind it, but just trying to focus on this. And all of a sudden I had this desire for a donut. <laughs> came into my mind. It was like one o'clock, so like I couldn't. Even if there was one there, I couldn't. I couldn't have eaten it. But it was just like, wow, that's how I've been living my life. This sort of, you know, sort of following, you know, following those desires. So then, what happened was though, the, then, you know, by living precepts. That's, that's kind of one way of doing this. Is like having some sort of discipline. So it's like having the five precepts or the eight precepts, you know, temporarily or something like that. You know, having that intention to, you know, basically not be, you know, to. Developing wholesome mind states and wholesome qualities, 
you, know, you can you can sort of like take on the metasutas and sort of practice you know, on top of sort of like the precepts and sort of you know take one quality like I was mentioning and sort of you know, work with that. So then when you do that though, what it what it often does is it actually brings it brings to light the opposite quality. So like I found with loving kindness, like the first like I said it was you know, even though I could get blissed out, because often for the first couple years I was doing it, it was also very painful too, because um, when I was sitting that first retreat with uh, the wise ones, um, the first the first time they actually introduced it, they, they do it slightly different than, than sort of the way they do it at, at IMS, where you start with yourself and then you do a benefactor. They had to start with their parents. And uh, we've been just doing, I think, uh, mindfulness of breathing for the first two or three days. So it's, there's some concentration happening there. And I've been already kind of in retreat for a while, so, so I was fairly concentrated. So then when they introduced the practice, started doing our parents, all of a sudden, all these really happy memories, just wishing my parents well, all these happy memories started coming up with my parents. And uh, I spent like the first day just sort of crying. I was just like remembering. I had very few memories of my parents being happy, but just like memory after memory coming up. And then... I remember the next day that I was really looking forward to getting into meditation hall. You know, what, what more memories am I going to remember? And they shifted us to do ourselves. And what happened was, is all these memories of myself having the potential to be happy, but me shutting them down and not allowing that happiness into my life. And I realized what it was, was like I had very few memories of my father being happy and my parents being happy. And, uh, and, uh, and so I had this view that I was a victim. I had this sort of worldview that I was a victim, and that when people were offering me you know, to be happy and things like that, it actually contradicted the self-view that I had of myself. Like, if you're a victim, you can't be happy. So I was shutting people down. It was extremely painful, you know, to see, see it, this conditioning and see that, that how I had done that. And so, um, and so it's like, so you know, how do you see that? So it's like you know, having having the precepts and uh, you know having this container will will allow you to actually see, like, so if you want to, um, see, you know, what was exactly that you know, the quality you were looking at? The, just wanting to see intention? Or? Well, the poor me, the yeah. you know, I need, was, was like you were talking about, but that, yeah. just in general, I thought that was good when I started. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So, like, the more you sort of, like, you know, have that precept, you start really starting to see, like, well, why, you know, why... What, what is it about the mind? That sort of what realities are trying to create for yourself that that has that thought come up? And then you can start seeing, you know, sort of the conditions or why those thoughts are there. And then usually it's, it's you know it's dukkha and it's very painful. And so it's like, oh, I don't want to go there. And that's where the wisdom, the wisdom aspect comes in. And so what I, what I find too, like with these practices, you know, at first it's like. I don't catch, at first I didn't catch like the anger or things like this until I'd already, well actually what I did with the anger was that I took a, a year-long practice of asking for forgiveness. This sort of, uh, um, what I realized was, is I was I was so angry that I was sort of like, um, almost every day offending somebody in some way by my speech or my actions. And so I, I made this real strong determination that if I knew by my actions, by my karma, um, if I had done anything to cause harm to somebody um, um, by my actions, body, speech, or mind, I would find the appropriate time, I would, uh, and I would approach that person, I would ask them if I could sort of speak with them, and then I'd apologize, I'd explain to them in detail like, what had happened or what I was thinking. And uh, it was a very powerful practice, and uh, um, the thing that happened was, is like over time, I did it for an entire year, so the beginning part was, 
I wouldn't realize that I had actually sort of you know, yelled at somebody until I left the room and then I would sort of, you know, all this anger and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to go apologize to her. And then, and then I started, you know, after a few months of doing this, I started uh, um, noticing as I was doing it, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to apologize for this, but I wasn't able to do it in the moment. And then when the practice really started getting good and I was you know, really bringing it to mind and noticing it, I'd be starting to say something to somebody and I could see that they were starting to react to me. And I was able to stop right in the moment and say, wait, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, I'm going to apologize to you now. I mean, the whole community knew I was doing forgiveness practice at this point. And then that's when people started telling me, it's like, wow, this is you know, really inspiring that you're able to catch it right in the middle of it. And then at the end of the year, I was noticing like trends. So like when these two monks are together in that particular room, you know, it, I know it's going to trigger something in me. Or the big thing in the monasteries is because we only eat one meal a day is that uh, right before the meal is the most stressful time for a lot of people. So if you have something that you need to say or ask somebody to do something, don't do it before the meal. So it's just like I started learning, you know, habit patterns of myself or others. Like, okay, this is the situation where aversion will come up and just avoid it. You know, sometimes sometimes you know, think avoiding is, is a negative thing, but in some situations it's not. So this, you know, this practice of, is like, uh, just noticing now, sort of like as soon as you can, and as soon as you can get deeper and deeper into like why that's there, then it will eventually you start catching it sooner and sooner until you'll even like, you know, if I was really mindful about the situation, you know, I should have, as soon as I saw the, 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 the tree, you know, tree branch, I should have actually set an attention in my mind, you know, don't be getting, <laughs> you know, don't be, don't be self-pity here, you know, just sort of, it has to be done, so to put, but uh, I hadn't actually established that in my mind, so, such a whip. Out, you know, a lot of the competition and, uh, and, and you know, 
I was actually kind of reflecting on this this week that uh, you know at the monastery we have now. That most of the time I've lived in the monastery, there's actually been like nobody living in the monastery who I would consider a friend. You know, they did not like uh, people that I would have. Would have, you know, like if I were a lay person, say, hey, let's go to a movie or let's go to a you know, ball game or something like that. It's just our personalities are so different, even with like 20 people there. It's, fortunately, right now in the monastery, there's, there's quite a few that I actually know, but most of the time, there's, there's very few people that I would have really considered friends. Uh, but that's not to say that but we do have Dhamma in common, and we do, we're, we're meditators, and you know, we're interested in creating community and things like that. So there are aspects that hold us there. But what really holds us together and keeps us in harmony is that sort of a hierarchical structure, and, and then all of us sort of um, you know, following the same, the same etiquette and the same rules. It, uh, it really allows you to, to um, make it along with completely different, different, different kinds of people. Um, one thing is with, say, the, the, the attitude of, of loving kindness is that it's uh, to like a situation with your, with your boss or something like that. It's like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that they, that, uh, um, that we, like we like sort of situation like somebody else who you know say technically like you're maybe more intelligent than or something like that has more sort of power over you or something like that. But this this quality of loving kindness is one of the words that uh, um, that it comes from is his is word maitri, which uh, in, in Sanskrit I think means friendship. And uh, I've heard that the the word also sort of has has connotations of uh, the sun sort of shining. So the way I look at that is it's like the, the, the sun doesn't discriminate on, on, on who it, you know, one, it's like, okay, we're only going to, we're only going to shine on Minnesota, we're not going to shine on Iowa. <laughs> no way. You know, something like that. So it's, you know, that, that attitude of, of wishing well to everybody is, is, is really, you know, so when you do it classically in terms of you know, the meditation, it you know, starts with people, the easiest to do it to all the way down to the neutral person and to actually hostile people. So even, even somebody who's openly you know, negative towards you and, and actually wishing you harm, you actually can develop that attitude of sort of wishing them well. And, uh, it, uh, you have to be able to develop it. So you know, for people who are, who are easy to do, that you really have that feeling, you actually know what it is, and you have that ability to do it. But if it, if it becomes strong enough, it can be even done to, to, to that kind of person. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah. Um, Mark told me that he talked in a very different way than I was used to, and we certainly are. And thank you for that. Um, one of the questions that was, was begged in my mind, though, is I read this Christianity uh, all the time. And are you suggesting that the wisdom practices in the SEMA need to be perfected before a medical practice can be? And I understand uh, how meta practice, what you can get attached to. I understand. Yeah. Um, in my own practice, I've been using meta to change my relationship to the negative, reversive things that tend to come up. But is it, are we supposed to perfect those wisdom practices before they get into a serious? Right. Yeah, from what I'd understood from when I was, I think it was uh, Anthea Olenski's work that I was talking to, um, 
just to, to sort of, like, again, like the state of peace, how it can be translated just two other ways. And it's the same way with that, that, act, that, that aspect comes up as well. It's like, you know, actually the first line is, um, you know, this is what should be done, you know, by one who's skilled in goodness. So it's like, so yeah, so do you already have to be skilled? Do you have to, you know, before you can do it? Or, is this, or, or, or are these skills that need to be developed? And so it's like, I didn't even get into it with that. Actually, you know, the, the first word there is, you know, that should. It's like in, in, in Buddhism, there actually are no shoulds. You know, so it's like, so it's, there's various translations on that word as well. So it's, it's more of this attitude of, you know, like, the Buddhist, you know, it's, you know, it's different to the, the Pali, so it's actually it's very difficult to sort of translate something from one language to the other. And, uh, and so it's, the Buddha is actually saying that it's not sort of like, you know, this is what you have to do. You know, it's like he's not coming to us and saying, look, everybody here, you know, this is what you have to do. And basically it's saying, you've come to him and say, I want to develop loving kindness. And he's saying, okay, well, if that's the case, this is what I would recommend you do. And so in that sense, I really do think that these, these you know, those 16 qualities there, it's like, these are, these are what you need to perfect in order to, 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 to really be doing it. But in the meantime, it's like, you know, so you are developing those, but, but you can always have that wish to, you know, that, I, that other beings not, not be suffering. And so, but it just, it becomes more, I think it just becomes more purified, you know, when, you, when we ourselves have our, say, our, you know, we're perfecting our, our, our uh, five precepts, if that's what you're living by, you know, you're, when you're really living that way, it just becomes a natural inclination of the mind to, to, to wish other people well. Most of the most of the 
his, his arguments I, I kind of like. There's some things I don't, yeah, maybe, I wouldn't say stretching it, but I, yeah, it just doesn't connect with me. But I do I do feel like I, I connect with his his translation of that as, as it being goodwill. And uh, I think, like, well, he uses the story, which is quite, quite an interesting story. It's like his teacher had a, had a snake move into this, this, uh, the kuti that he was living in. And, uh, um, and for three days, he was just sort of uh, you know, wishing this, this snake, you know, uh, loving kind or metta or something. I think he actually was, he was doing stuff like leaving the door open to the cabin and hoping the snake would meet and things like that. I think it was after three days, the snake still hadn't left. And he finally just sort of said, he, he sat down and he started sending metta to the snake. And then he had this little dialogue with the snake mentally just sort of saying, it's like, look, it's not that I have any ill will towards you. You know, just, you know, we think differently and there might be some misunderstanding between us and one of us might get hurt. You know, plenty of places for you to live outside in the forest and you, know, you don't mind. And the snake actually, as he was doing this in his meditation, actually left the cabin. And so Ajahn Fung sort of told the community about this or told Ajahn Jeff about this. And he said that really changed the way he started you know, thinking of metta. It's not as loving kindness because it's not like he didn't love the snake. You know, it was just sort of this. You know, he had goodwill towards the snake because like he didn't want the snake to get stepped on accidentally or injured or you know, feeling fear when he was in there. So he just had this this thought of goodwill. And so uh, and that's that's why he started writing. That that's how he starts writing. So yeah, it's just metta's. Method is good one or something like that. You can, it's it's online. It's a good article. Yeah, uh, Bhante Gunaratana has been uh, you know translating it for quite a few years now. It's uh, loving friendliness, which, which is also a nice nice sort of translation as well. So there are there are quite a few. And it's interesting like, when I first lear- learned it. It's like I do think of it myself. When I'm thinking of goodwill. Or metas is more like goodwill. That's how I've always thought of it. But whenever I talk about it, I always say loving kindness because for the first 10, 15 years that I've been studying, it's always been translated as loving kindness. So it's it's kind of hard to get that that shift. One thing I've sort of noticed with my own, just since really looking at this practice, is like I, I have always thought of sort of loving kindness as being sort of one sort of emotion, and then. And sort of loving kindness in, in the way it's, it's taught in the sort of commentarial is it's one of uh, the Brahma Viharas. So everybody knows that it's part of the, the loving kindness, compassion, which is Karuna, uh, Mudita, is, uh, joy at other people's good fortune, and then uh, equanimity, uh, Upeka. And so I started. Uh, say when I was with this, this monk up in Washington, we were going back and forth for about a month. Month or two, about six weeks, we actually started. Going, we kept going back and forth and just just teaching on various aspects of loving kindness. And uh, I had this kind of insight where I was the way I, the way I started looking at uh, actually the practice of loving kindness. I really think in order to be able to do it properly, to do it to, to actually just even be able to really practice it, you have to develop all four of the brahmaviharas at the same time. It's like doing one without the other doesn't. It, it's harder. And so because really the definition of I say it's because we're going in here into the real definition of, of, of uh, you know, looking at loving kindness is that it's uh, just that wishing that other people not, you know, non-ill will. But well, yeah, one thing I want to point out too is like the, uh, so it talks about say the path, the path of peace, is that uh, uh, the path is also you can think of as the eightfold path. And so the eight, 
And so it's like metta actually shows up in the Eightfold Path. It's uh, in right intention. So there's three three mind states that we should develop in attention. One is the thought of renunciation. One is the thought of uh, non-ill will and non-cruelty. So non-ill will is metta. That actually is the... So right there in the Eightfold Path, there's right intention is to develop metta. And the non-ill will is uh, non-cruelty. Or non-cruelty is, uh, is, is compassion. So when I started looking at it, I was like looking at this. And so what really, to me, what loving kindness is, is, is the sort of opening up. It's uh, you're opening up your heart to to connecting with other people. Is really what it's what it's about. You're you're learning to you have to open up, to connect with other people. But when you when you open up your heart, you know, just to the world, what what are we opening ourselves up to? We're opening ourselves up to pain. We're opening ourselves up to dukkha, and we're opening ourselves up to joy. Now, if, if we don't have any other practices and we're opening ourselves up, and we're you know, brought in a lot of pain or a lot of joy, what we do is we close down because our hearts can't, can't handle that. It's, it's, uh, it's getting blown away. And so we might think, oh, I can't do this practice because it's, it's too painful, it's too hard. You know? and, uh, or for me, it was like you know, the joy was coming up, so it was just kind of burning me up. There's just too much, too much happiness, too much blissing out with it. For the... So what happens is, is uh, uh, the way I look at it is it's sort of like equanimity is sort of the balancing balancing factor. And so I think of it as almost like this pendulum or sort of a pivot point in my, in my heart. And there's sort of this pole coming out. And at the end of the pole is this sort of open receptor, sort of receiving things out in front of me. And then, but what's pivoting is, is sort of so when joy comes in, then that's when mudita, the practice of appreciating other people's joy. So it sort of brings, brings the practice down. But when there's lots of suffering, compassion comes in. And so it's that all four of them sort of balance each other and keep you from getting blown away, so you can open it, be balanced. And, uh, and so, yeah. So that, that's that's the way I look at the practice now. It's just the end. You can't have one without the other. We have time for one more question. <laughs> I stole her line. <laughs> One question. Do we want to pass out the chant book? Can we can maybe chant the his words on the Sure. Um, yeah. Can we pass out the chant book real quick? Does anybody know offhand? Did you want to do the message chant? Mm-hmm. Does anybody know offhand what page it's on? Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Thank you. Um, while they're passing out the chant book, maybe I'll try just quickly go through a few things. Um, as the Ajahn mentioned, um, Mark is sick, and so if any of you are signing up for the relationship workshop tomorrow, we're sorry, but that is canceled, and we'll need to reschedule. Uh, we'll put a sign up on the door, too, but uh, please, if you have any friends, let them know as well. Also, this Sunday is the quarterly community gathering. It starts at 10.30. No registration is needed. We marked as a Dhamma talk, followed by um, the precepts and um, refuges. And then there's a potluck at 11.45. And for those of you, you can come to just the potluck if you can't make the 10.30. There's no need to take away the chairs. We'll have it all set up for Sunday. And then... um, before we do the Mecca chant, I would just like to say 
Um, number one, thank you so much to Ajahn Tertipal for being here. Um, it's quite a blessing and a lot of gratitude for you taking your time uh, to stop by and uh, feed us with your words of wisdom. And it's always a pleasure to listen. Um, as most of you know, Common Ground is based on the concept of dana, which is generosity. And tonight, um, with our guest speakers, usually any dana that's collected in the bowl outside is split with the guest speaker and Common Ground. In this case, um, with an ajahn, there's usually, while well, he doesn't accept money, there is usually um, costs associated with his traveling here and then up Jairo River, et cetera. So thank you very much for whatever in your hearts. And if you have any questions about Common Ground or Donna or any of the other things, uh, feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. And uh, thank you very much. So the suit is on page 28. <coughs> This is what should be done by one who is still in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so One cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. 
outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I'll probably stay here just for a few minutes if anybody has any questions they want to look later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.